Hey, everybody, and welcome to 52 Weeks of Empowerment. I am your host, Andrea Pagnosi. I'm also a career empowerment coach that is fiercely dedicated to getting everyone in 2022 to realizing their true career potential. For the last several weeks, we've been trying to make a end of year commitment to everyone to gear you up towards next year. Before you leave this year, give you that last push to be super, super successful in whatever it is you do. We've talked about getting aligned with your leadership on your career path. We've talked about giving feedback. And today we're going to continue that by what I like to call human first, employee second. And I got coined that phrase in talking to our guests today. She is a amazing coach. She's an amazing person with over 20 years of business strategy and marketing experience, including building two of her own six-figure businesses. And she knows that there are two ways to build, launch, and grow businesses that she's going to talk about today. But what she's going to talk about is her time as a corporate employee, a corporate leader, as a matter of fact, and how to really lead differently. Look at her employees, much, much different scope than a lot of leaders are doing. And in turn, we're going to have a conversation about that and how we can start to implement those strategies as leaders. She is a dear friend of mine. She runs her own business. We're going to hear all about it. Erin Meadows, welcome to 52 Weeks of empowerment. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with you. I am excited as well. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you transition from being successful corporately to having your own successful businesses. Oh, yeah. So I I spent over 20 years working um, as a business strategist, marketing and communications professional. And I really kind of started to reach the pinnacle of that career. And I was getting to that. And right around that 20 year mark, I noticed, I don't know about if you see this in your clients, a lot of people at that mark start questioning, do I have another 15, 20 years in me doing this? And a lot of conversations with me were turning to people asking if I was interested in C-level jobs, if I wanted to move into even higher parts of leadership and the types of organizations I've been working in. Every part of me that wanted to say yes to that just couldn't. Because deep down inside, I knew that I wanted to start my own business. I wanted to be the CEO of my own company. I wanted to do my own work and impact the lives and careers of other people that way. And so while these offers and these opportunities on paper were the dream, quote, the dream, for me at that point in my life, there was no energetic yes for me. Energetically, it was a no. And so I decided to start my first business, which was a consulting business where I literally picked up exactly what I did in my corporate career, dropped it into an LLC and sold services out to people that I knew. Then in that business, I realized that my consulting approach was really a blend of consulting and coaching. And from there, I kind of pivoted that business and landed into this second business where I work as a coach now and still a consultant, but mostly coaching. 
<laughs> I have chills because this is such deja vu for me. This is exactly the same, same journey, which is probably why I identify so much with every conversation I've had with you. And the first one we had, we talked about getting people unstuck from where they are today to where they would rather be. And the funny part is you and I tell the same story about people trying to get us where they wanted us to be. And we were like, oh, oh. yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. And it's really interesting. I always kind of laugh at you. Know, we pick our, for the most part, especially, you know, in our, in this culture here, we, we tend to pick our career path at 18. And I like to laugh. That's when we go into college, a lot of us. And I always laugh and say, so I chose my entire career at the same age that I was still into dating bad boys. Like I still thought that was like the, the way to go for me. And I kind of laugh at it because it was like, I've changed since then. I've changed in who I was dating and ultimately the type of person I married. And also the things that I thought I wanted to do at 18, at 20, at 30, because I'm a human, because I'm evolving, I've changed. And I kind of describe it for me. I got on that conveyor belt almost of a career. And I really just kind of woke up one day and realized I was running in a race I actually didn't ever really mean to enter. I didn't mean to climb the ladder I was climbing. I was just doing what we're trained and taught to do. And uh, for a lot of people, that is what they want. They want to move up that ladder. They want to get to that sea level. For me, it just became so clear. I want to have my own business. I want to kind of do things my way, um, which is because I always liked to lead my way in, inside of a corporate environment. Very interesting is that you said that at 18, kind of had a vision forward. Mm -hmm. I agree with that to an immense point because I can tell you, I just this year really started to look at the demographics, the analytics of my clients, how long it was taking them to pivot from one job to another, the type of job that they foresaw themselves doing out of the blue. Is it something they've been working towards? Was it something vehemently different from what they were doing? All of these different sort of data point. But the irony was most of them were getting back to this sort of tribal influence of what they wanted to do initially, mm -hmm. but never did. Love For example, it. they went to school to do one thing when they were 18, but like so many of us, they got a job wherever they could get a job and then they stayed there. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about that 18 year old self. If you were to look back now and say to your 18 year old self, Hey, this is what you need to be prepared for. What mm. would be the first thing you would tell them? Ooh, don't hedge your bets and get comfortable with failure. First and foremost, at like, because I'm a recovering perfectionist, I've spent my entire life hedging my bets and doing the things that I know I'm going to be good at. And so I would go back and I would say, listen, Fail spectacularly, fall flat on your face, do it fast, get up faster, do it again, and go live this life fully. Go for all of it. That's what I would tell myself. Uh, because even if I even if I chose the same career path, which I likely would, I loved my first career. Even if I chose it, I would have been swinging for the fences the whole time and not spending my whole life being scared of a misstep. What I try to tell my younger clients this year, I started to take on some college students who were trying to 
prepare themselves for that first job and needed coaching in that regard, I asked them to make note, literally write a letter to themselves Mm -hmm. as a 30-year-old person and foresee what they would like for themselves, right on a, a note card. These are three things that I'm shooting for by the age of 30. And to open it up and to see if they got it, not with the mindset that, hey, if you didn't, it's a failure, mm-hmm. but hey, where has the path taken you? And how differently those bullet points might be at 30. Because I'll tell you, when I was 30, and you said this in the beginning, my bullet points were completely different from my 18-year-old self. But when I became an entrepreneur and I started living by my own ideals, running my own business, I was able to be free enough to explore what I really always wanted to do. However, there's a difference with you. And this is why you're on the show. When we first spoke, you spoke about your experience in a corporate environment and being a very different kind of leader, the leader I wished I had been. Mm. I'm meaning that very sincerely because you took a whole different tack than what most people do in a corporate environment. You've brought it to life as a coach. I'd love for you to talk about your idealism about treating people like humans first mm-hmm. and treating them as an employee second. Can you introduce yeah. that concept for the listeners? Absolutely. So I tell everyone you are a human before you are anything else. So you are a human being having a whole human life and an entire human experience before you're an employee, before you're a boss, before you're a partner, a parent, a sister, a brother, you're you having your human experience first. What I noticed And I still notice when I go into a lot of corporate environments and do workshops or coach inside the corporate environment is, and especially today, there's a a genuine effort to embrace kind of bringing your whole self to work. However, the undercurrent and especially the undercurrent through the majority of my career was check your human at the door, drop it at nine and pick it back up at five when we're done here. Don't bring any of that mess in here because we have a business to run. And that just never sat well with me. It never felt right. And so before I was leading, before I was a leader, it was almost a gut and a very visceral response. If I was working for someone who didn't treat me as a human, I would have a strong response to that. And if I worked for someone who did see me as a human, whether they were doing it purposely or not, I would have a a strong response. So when I started leading, it was very clear to me that the way forward, the way to motivate and inspire and build trust with my team is to first and foremost, see them as human beings and then to do the good work together. One of the things I want to point out very early in this episode is on a previous episode, one of my guests referred to it as, and I don't think it was an original phrase. It came from a book that she had read, but the phrase is ruinous empathy. We are not talking about enabling people to be lackadaisical and to be low performers. We are talking about empowering people through treating them like human beings. So that said, that's the disclaimer. Simon calls this their why. Is it very different from that mentality? No, I mean, I think that that is really, we want the the way to motivate people, the way to motivate ourselves is to connect into the deepest why, the most powerful, most energetically resonating why. 
And so whether I am trying to figure out how, what is going to take someone and motivate them and inspire them to do great work, or even if I'm wanting to understand what, what is causing someone to struggle, it does come down to the why, but it also comes down to the what, you know, what are they dealing, what are they dealing with that? I don't even know about that. I may never know about that. I just need to assume that every human I am encountering in my day has a lot underneath the water level that I can't see that they're dealing with. And I just need to wholesale accept that they're humanness and bring that into the workplace. I am envisioning a picture that's sometimes depicted on the web. You've probably seen it. It's mm-hmm. a picture of an iceberg. Yep. And they talk about it when they refer to the Titanic sinking is that it wasn't what was above the water that was the damaging part. It was what was below, which was a far bigger chunk of ice that yeah. ripped through the hull of the tan- Titanic. And that is by and large, the analogy you're making too, is that what's beneath the surface and the people is sort of regardless. It's none of our business, what's going on in their private lives and things like that. But the fact is accepting that they have a private life that is so important. How did you embrace that mentality as a leader in an organization? So the the biggest piece of this puzzle for me is always making sure that I am having a genuine relationship and not a transactional relationship. And what I always tell people is whenever whether it's a work, whether it's a work relationship or a personal relationship, when something feels off, the first thing I encourage people to do is to ask themselves, when is the last time I had a real human conversation with this other person. And this happens so much in business. And so what I mean by a transactional relationship is I will invest in you just enough to get the job done. And you will invest in me just enough to get the job done. So I'm not going to ask you how your long weekend was. I'm not going to sit here and listen to you when you're having a bad day, or you want to talk about what happened with your partner or your kids, or that your dog's been sick. I'm going to just be nice enough to start talking about work again. I'm going to be interested enough to start talking about work again. And I've noticed in those moments when something's felt off in a relationship, when I go to, when's the last time you just talked to them as a human and checked in with them and asked them what's going on in their real human life? The answer more often than not is, oh, wow, it's been a minute. It's time to stop talking about work and start talking about human things with this person again. That's the very first kind of like stepping off point to this concept of human first, employee second for me. It establishes trust. It establishes connection. It brings you together. And those people are the ones that are going to be invested in wanting to perform well. Wanting to come to you for help instead of trying to fix it on their own, wanting your praise, wanting you to be their advocate and trusting that you will be. So that is an important first step. The previous episodes over the last several weeks have been talking about the importance of the checkpoint. What did the checkpoint look like for you when you were meeting with your employees to try to make that connection? I will preface this by saying, I believe that it is in part a leader's job to be their authentic self and flex to the individual authentic selves around them. I've managed people that don't want to tell me all about their weekend. And so I have to have the discernment and tune in for, look, they're going to want a quick, hey, how was your weekend? Mine was great. How was yours? And then they, they don't want to go into the details. So first, it's discerning who I'm talking to, which means I have to listen a lot. And I think as leaders, and especially when I became a new leader, there is so much pressure to be the first, the fastest, the, sometimes the loudest, and the, the voice in the room with the most answers. 
And so the first thing I do when I'm checking in is I ask a starter question and then I just listen. And then if they seem excited about it, my next question is, oh my gosh, tell me more. Tell me more. I want to hear more about this. Or if they're struggling with something, I'll say, can you tell me more? Do you mind sharing a little bit more? And just letting them talk because I want to hear what's important to them long before I start going into what's important about me. And so that's typically how I check in with people. It's honestly how I start every one of my, before I ever jump into what do you want to work on in coaching today? It's catch me up. How have things been? What's going on with you? Tell me more. And then we even go, even as a coach, that's how I start. As well as I do. I feel as though if you can't connect with the human, Mm -hmm. everything else is robotic. You might as well be AI. Yes. And that's really what it is, is it's honoring the fact that we as humans are feeling, we are emotional. We're going to bring that into business. We are going to bring that in work. I mean, it's so interesting to me that we we discourage our colleagues from bringing their emotions to work, but yet look at how we sell and market. We sell and market to emotion. Mm-hmm. So all these companies out there that don't want their employees feeling anything from nine to five and then are turning around trying to figure out how to emotionally connect with their customer or with their with their constituents it's a little, it's a little, it's a little kind of unbalanced to me. We're, we're emotional. That's why we sell to emotion. It's, it's how we connect. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you have a background as well in human resources, correct? Uh, not in human resources, but I do a lot of, I do coaching inside of organizations. That's what, okay. So yeah. having said that you are exposed to a lot of the point of hiring in an organization. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I start this out is I became a leader. Gosh, I think my first promotion into management, people management was 25 years ago. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. And the prototype for a leader. And one of the biggest reasons why I know full well, I did not get positions that I interviewed for Despite being on a promotion pathway and and my friends teasing me, you're the token woman on the promotion Mm -hmm. pathway, but you're never quite getting there is because I did show a lot of empathy early on the people they were looking for. And in fairness, it was the sales manager role. So there Mm -hmm. was a lot of antiquated old boys club. They want people that are all fully analytical, that it's about the numbers, 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 and it's about delivering on results and that sort of thing. And you don't come across like that. So these are the things we want you to work on. Today's prototype looks a lot different when you're looking at leadership. What are some of the things that leaders today can emulate in a corporate environment based on the consulting that you've done mm-hmm. um, to, to better position themselves for that type of a role? Mm, yeah. Well, I think that most forward-thinking organizations have caught on to the fact on some level that we kind of can't, can't unsee each other's humanness to a certain degree after this pandemic. So they're striving to put things like culture values in place. They're striving to be a little more flexible, to be, to be a little more present with their staff, with their employees. Um, but we still have a business to run. So I think for me, the secret sauce that, that I feel like I have and that I see in other people is really being able to clearly speak to the business while also showing that you care about the people who run the business. So being able to speak straight, like if you put me in a boardroom, I'm going to get my agenda items passed. I'm going to be able to speak to the business 
But I'm also before that board meeting starts, I'm going to go up and genuinely ask people how they're doing and listen and show that I care. So I think that's the one-two punch here is you, you've got to have your chops. You've got to be able to do to bring the, the hard skills to work. But, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, SHRM, the Society for Human Resources Management, has a had a study where they found, you know, 80 plus percent of our success in getting promoted and career trajectory comes from what we call soft skills. And what that tells me is soft skills aren't soft. They're actually some of the hardest, most important skills we can develop. So I think the fact that I can sit there and talk business strategy with you and you also feel seen, heard, understood in my presence is, is what moved me forward. And I do think that would be my recommendation for organizations to look for that combination, to look for someone who can really speak. Look at how when they're talking about their teams that they've led in the past, look at how are they lighting up when they talk about these people? Are they lighting up over the work of those people? I would ask, I would ask questions like, okay, I've heard a lot about some of your personal successes. Tell me about something that the last team you managed did that you were so proud of them for and see how they respond to that. Those are the types of questions I would be curious to ask. I also echo the fact that soft skills are the hardest skills and would beg for corporations to invest in their leadership team skills overall. Try as you might, not everybody's going to be good at everything. So you've got to continue to hone skills and give them opportunities to grow and develop as leaders. And I cannot, cannot repeat this quote enough. I have a dear friend who was on a previous episode this year who has always said, if you have a dollar to spend on training, spend it on your frontline managers because it's so important to invest in their skills. Mm -hmm. What are the most important skills that I see that's lacking is this ability to really kind of commit to something in such a way that it's very clear. There's no ambiguity. I don't know if that's because of all the changes Mm -hmm. from the pandemic and the amalgamations we've had to go through corporately. But what I see as as a miss is a ability for leaders to communicate and commit to those things that will help their people get ahead. There's a lot of ambiguity. What are you seeing as areas that need the most investment in terms of skill development? Well, first of all, I agree with you. And and here's what I want to say. You can be the most kind, caring, nicest, empathetic leader in the world, but if you cannot cast and hold a vision for your team, they will not follow you. They just won't. They'll go, hey, great. I used to laugh all the time and say, look, I'm nice, but I'm not running for homecoming queen here. (laughs) I'm going to be a kind, caring leader, but I'm also going to cast a really strong vision and hold it for you. Because look, they're not going to fall in line and follow that, even if they think you're a nice person. So I I definitely agree with that. And I also want to echo what you said about frontline managers and leaders. You know, I work with a lot of new new managers, new leaders, kind of mid-levels. And one of the things that I've seen, even when I moved up into leadership, that is such a big miss in organizations is we take someone who is a strong individual contributor who has completely dominated their area of expertise. And then we say, great, you've grown it so much. We need to put some people under you now. And so they're good at doing the things, the tactical things. They're good at running their function or doing their part of the the organization's work. 
And so we elevate them to start managing people and we don't invest any time, money, or energy in teaching them how to lead people. We just assume that they'll figure it out. And I think that is one of the biggest mistakes that I see wholesale across the board in organizations is that they're not taking the time to teach people who are good, strong individual contributors, teach them how to lead. And it and it's a it's a skill. I actually think it's a skill. It can be nurtured and it can be taught if you take the time to do it. It absolutely can. I've been in learning and development, organizational development for a number of years. I was asked back as far as 2010 to start implementing coaching in the leaders, which is what made me hire a coach. Mm-hmm. And in turn, because I had such an ex- a, a exemplary coach, I went into coaching myself. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you were inspired very similarly. How does coaching play a role in leadership with employees how do you see it manifest itself Mm. because I think there's a difference between managing people Mm -hmm. and the need to coach people yeah so the first thing that pops into my mind is kind of the difference between managing someone and being a coach leader of someone someone who coaches their team along I'll give you an example let's say somebody does something and it blows up spectacularly it does not go well The manager is most likely going to say, why did you do that? Why did you do it that way? And the coach is going to say, what did you learn? And the manager is going to say, next time do it this way. And the coach is going to say, how will you do it differently next time? And that to me is the difference. And to be a coaching leader means you are going to have to slow down stop solving all the problems, give space and psychological safety for people to feel safe to fail and help them see it for themselves versus shaming and blaming and telling them how to do it better next time. To me, that's just the easiest way to describe the difference that I see in someone who's just managing or leading and someone who's actually coaching and inspiring their team. Spot on. Spot on. Well said. I work with a lot of coaching clients that are pivoting in their career, they're looking for greener pastures, promotions, even if it's a lateral, just a different way of doing things or a different industry, take relatable skills and apply them elsewhere, or they're looking for their first job or whatever, they're pivoting from some natural point to another point. And what I'm finding is that they're asking more informed questions of leaders when they interview. Mm -hmm. What would you encourage someone who is coming from a situation where humanity is not something that's embraced and they're not feeling like they have someone that connects with them or that they can trust, when they're looking for that next best opportunity, what should that person be looking for and asking about in an interview? I love the idea of starting with an organization's cultures, their culture values. And one of the questions that I would ask if I were interviewing is I would do my research and say, I've, you know, I've gone on your website, I've looked around and I see that these are your, your top three values as an organization. Can you give me some examples of how the, your value of transparency shows up in real life day to day in the work here? And if they struggle to answer that, 
if they struggle to articulate that, I might want to probe a little bit. Because what happens is we spend, and I, and I help organizations create culture values. And I tell people all the time, don't pay me a bunch of money to just throw some words up on a wall or on a document. Pay me money to help you figure out how to implement it day to day. I would be very, if I were interesting, I would have so many questions about your values. Um, do, do you make hiring uh, decisions based off of these values? Would you be willing to lose a great employee, but they're great in all areas, but they're not living by the values? You know, how do these values show up when you are, when we're working with difficult clients? I would be very interested to know if an organization truly understands and is in, in living by their values. And that's hard. It's hard for organizations to do that. Can you ignite passion in people as a leader, I'd say we both agree, yes. Can mm -hmm. you douse the flame and relight it? If there's been a situation where you have interviewed somebody and hired somebody who was asking those awesome questions you just gave examples of, and you're welcoming them in, but they're coming in a little wounded. How do you solve for that? How do you reignite that passion? Uh, this has happened to me many times in my career where people come in and we spend a lot of time in that those first, you know, honestly, six months to a year where they're, once they learn they can trust me, typically what will happen is they'll start saying like, in my last job, this happened. So I really try to listen to that. My, my last boss or two bosses ago or my first boss. And I try to listen to that. And here's what I do with that. I give a lot of space to it. I don't try to take away any of the, the validity of what they're sharing because it's all very real and it was a lived experience for them and it matters. Eventually, as I've built trust and rapport, I will get to a place with someone where I say, we're going to need to, you and I are going to need to find a path that allows you to move forward, that allows you to learn how to trust this team. And I would love to help you in figuring out what that looks like. Uh, and, and the way that it's going to show up is it's going to show up in, I will tell them that I will tell them that I'm going to do something or basically say something that signals you can trust me. They're going to nod and say yes, and then not really trust me until they see that they can trust me over and over again. So I have to have the patience to build the rapport. And then as the leader, if they can't move past it, and I've sat people down and said, listen, you're, you're a year and a half in here. We've got to find a path forward so that you are not working from fight, flight, freeze, fawn, right? From, from you know, trauma response, from nervous system response. We've got to find a way to get you moving forward in, you, in your current job. And I'd love to help you move past that. It happens all the time. I mean, I can still think, I can still name every horrible boss I've ever had, <laughs> right? They're still with me. I remember them. They taught me exactly what I don't want to do. But the question is, as a leader, can I get somebody kind of reignited when they're coming out of a rough situation? The answer is yes, with time and patience, because it's very real to them. Very real. It is. It is. And sometimes one of the coaching techniques that is found to be most valuable with people starting new jobs is to unpack that baggage before mm -hmm. they go into a new situation, yeah. carry it with them. I love the way that you also articulated there's a time point there. You yeah. may take a while, so don't mm -hmm. expect. I, I think as leaders, we're wired to want to put out fires pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't become 
a, a forest fire and engaging other people on the team and bringing them down. Um, so how do you sponsor the team dynamic in a situation where you as a leader really want to build a sense of humanity at your company? Because I believe it starts with one person, but positivity can spread widely. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, can you give some examples of situations where you empowered in a team dynamic uh, your vision for human first, employee second? Yeah, I actually think of one team that I brought together that they started off being on multiple different teams, teams that were not working well together, and they ended up on one team that I put together and led. And I would say that a lot of them were in the struggle, were, it wouldn't surprise me to hear if some of them were already looking for new jobs by, by the time I came on. Um, passion was definitely dwindling. And, you know, the very first thing I did, and it will always be my number one thing is to tell people is I spent a lot of time listening, a lot of time listening, listening and letting them tell me whatever they needed to tell me so that I could move forward and even whatever they needed to just release and let go of. And I listened without judgment of them. And then I really started to establish a consistent presence with them as a whole team as well as a consistent present with presence with the individuals on the team. I wanted them to know me one-on-one -on -one and to know each other in that group setting. Then I started to empower every single person on this team to lead and educate everyone else. So one of the things I implemented is once a month, I asked a different person on my team to take something in, in our scope of work and come to our team meeting and teach us something about it. So show us how you put together um, a Google ad campaign. Show us how you um, put this newsletter together. Show us how you do this um, and teach us because I wanted everyone on this team to be seen as both the student and a teacher for the team. Uh, and so I, and then I just did fun things, right? Like let's get together and have fun and not talk about work. And one of the last things I did with this team was I offered up um, the lettuce pact. Have you heard of this? No. I think it comes, I think it comes from the book Crucial Conversations, but you know, it's kind of this sense of, have you ever gone out to lunch with people and then you get in the car and realize you had a big piece of lettuce in your teeth and no one told you? And you were like, why? Why did you let me go this whole meal? So one of the last things I did with this team is I walked them through a, a business version of this where we each told the other team members, if I'm not showing up in any given moment as my best self, if I'm showing up in a way that is, is really problematic, if I'm being horrible in a meeting or I'm just not doing what I normally do, I give you permission to let me know that there's proverbial lettuce in my teeth. And here's how I want you to do it. Don't approach me in front of people. Pull me aside or, yeah, call it out in the moment. I'm OK with that. And we just gave each other permission once the initial trust was built to actually be human and say, hey, are you OK? Like that, that meeting, Aaron, you were not your normal self in there. Is everything OK? And even I gave my team permission, call me out on it if, if because I might not be okay. So it's these types of little steps that I, and, and that's just one team example, but that's typically how I've, I've run teams and typically how I would help organizations work through something like this today. It's very funny that you use that analogy. It wasn't the same analogy, but on a previous episode, uh, somebody had talked about having toilet paper on your shoe. And yeah. how you give yeah. feedback, should it be subtle or should it be direct? And we were talking about the different ways of giving feedback, but it wasn't dissimilar from your experience. And ah. I think it bears repeating that people 
who want, they innately want to do well. They need to hear they've got support. They People have their back. It's not just about the, the feedback itself, but it's about feeling that if I do try to take the steps that I'm being told I should, and I still mm-hmm. fall short of gold, there's still people in my corner to help mm-hmm. support me. And my manager is one of them. Yes. And I will say, speak as I spoke earlier about that one-two punch of, of being good at the business side and then also being this empathetic, caring leader. I will do all of that with a team. But the thing that really makes it matter is when I do that and I also remove roadblocks. I ensure they have the tools that they need to succeed. I take work off their plate when they are clearly burned out. I readjust things so that they can move forward. I have the difficult conversations with my colleagues so that my team is not being you know, bombarded. It only matters when I'm actually moving the work forward with them. It has to be the both of them together. It just does. Otherwise, I'm a nice person who they think she's nice, but she's not a strong leader. Yeah. Amazing inspiration because I just feel like you have such a great way of articulating all of these things. What's the ideal client for you, Erin? Well, I will work with anyone who enjoys what I talk about. I love to, I typically market to women and women who are often in leadership or entrepreneurs definitely have plenty of men, non-binary folks in my world as well. Uh, gender fluid folks. So basically all the humans welcome. I love to really help people focus on what truly matters to them in their lives and their careers. So I tell people, it does not matter what you hire me for. And a lot of people will hire me for career or leadership. I'm going to coach the whole human. We're probably going to talk about your whole life because it's all one. It's all one thing. I want people to do more of what matters to them. I want people to experience more joy in their lives and in their careers. I want people to make a living in a way that doesn't make them miserable every day. Those are the types of things that I love to work on. Um, And I'm just really into helping people build their confidence, build their courage, and to show up authentically and to do it their way. I mean, my way of leadership is not everybody's way. I was often the odd bird but it is my way. And, and I have done it with courage and eventually confidence over time. And it, it has served me. How can people get in touch with you? Oh, so you can find me. I'm on Instagram at, at Aaron Meadows coaching. I'm on LinkedIn, Aaron Meadows, and you can find me at AaronMeadowsCoaching.com. And, um, always just send me a note. I I work with one-on-one private clients who hire me privately. And I also work with organizations who bring me in to coach individuals and teams within their organizations. So always happy to chat. Very much worth the chat as it was today. I want to thank Erin Meadows for joining 52 Weeks. I know that people are going to be so empowered by this conversation. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you and I appreciate our listeners for tuning in this week. That's all the time we have this week. We'll catch up with you next week. Same time, same place, even more power.